how to write for human being and don't forget about search agents it's very important today you can't ignore anything robots people because people can uh, bounce fast if it's not interesting and search engines can ignore don't crawl your website even it's valuable i'm so excited to discuss this topic with Maddy osman how are you i'm doing great thank you for having me back again yeah big pleasure i got a lot of valuable insights that's why i decided to invite you one more time to get more value i know <laughs> you can share value as much as possible maybe before we start just tell more about your self-experience background remind our audience what you do about your book where you by the way share all this topic uh, give sure. a strong reason to read this book as well absolutely yeah so i'm maddie osman i run a content agency um primarily for b2b technology brands called blogsmith and um my book which is you know some somewhat what we're going to touch on today writing for humans and robots the new rules of content style is really about um bridging that gap between writing for humans but also satisfying the needs of search engine robots and um, i'm tuning in today from lakewood colorado so that's where in the world i'm at and um yeah I'm, i'm excited to dig in because i think that since we last talked a lot has happened in the world of ai writing um ai search um so it's it's definitely a very timely topic to determine you know where Where do you fit into this mix? How do you how do you take advantage of tools and things like that? But also how do you continue to have that human touch that that at this point I think only we can add? Nice, nice. You touched about AI. <laughs> It's uh that was simple to ignore, hard today, impossible tomorrow. Yeah, because <laughs> AI is a regular tool. I I used before ChatGPT, right now I can use a lot more. But mm. you know, I made it. I found that uh, many content creators, writers, authors, they overuse AI, ChatGPT, and uh, some of them can post for uh, Forbes, Bloomberg, uh, Investopedia, because I work a lot on uh, finance niche, and I found sure. all of them, all of them, without any exception, you <laughs> use uh, ChatGPT, and uh, you know, uh, I love AI, but uh, I can feel that AI is the best rewriting tool ever. Rewriting, <laughs> you can get a hundred percent of uniqueness. You can cheat tools, but you can't cheat people. You can't cheat Google because people, if they find the same content online, uh, if you have rewritten this content, rephrased, uh, it's the same. You know, it's like to same. ask about a new movie. I often ask my friends about a new movie because. Uh, I want to save my time and uh, uh, the most common reply, nothing special. I watch many similar movies, the same plot. Uh, can you tell how to use AI not overuse mm. because most content creators overuse it? <laughs> sure, absolutely. I, I think you bring up a really good point, which is that one of the strengths of using ai text tools is the ability to rewrite existing text and i think instead of thinking about using it to rewrite maybe somebody else's text i think one of the great applications of ai is using it to help you find the best way to present your own ideas so there's this one ai generative text tool that it's like a google docs add-on it's called word tune 
And that's, that's a favorite of mine because basically the way it works is, you know, I'll type some sentences in Google Docs and I think every writer at some point struggles with, you know, there's something that sounds a little bit off about that, or I just don't know how to communicate that idea. You know, this first go around, sometimes edits take a long time because you're trying to find that perfect word or that perfect phrase. And as humans, you know, sometimes it just escapes us naturally because um, our brains do not have infinite capacity like an AI's uh, you know, stores of data do. And so what, what's really great about a tool like WordTune is it takes your text and it makes suggestions, how to make it longer or shorter, how to rephrase it, um, different things along those lines. So I think that's a great use of an AI tool because you're not trying to get it to, to completely make something up. You're using it to, to wield the power of your own words and making them stronger. So that's that's one way that I think AI text or, or AI tools can be really helpful. Um, I think the other way that I like to think about AI text tools, again, is really not so much to to go from start to finish, you know, in one click of a button, but it's things like, you know, perhaps helping with the research side of content creation. Um, grabbing, you know, relevant sources and statistics and and keyword phrases to think about. Um, so tools like ClearScope or Phrase are really great for that research aspect of it. Um, and you still, again, have to add your human intuition because what those tools are doing is telling you this is what already exists. So you have to then, you know, factor in well, what isn't already covered? How can I make something that's truly unique? How can I you know, perhaps add some unique expert insight that wasn't present in these existing articles that are already ranking. And then it's things like, you know, it can help you with not starting with a blank page, things like maybe generating a basic outline, um, maybe helping to refine your page title, um, you know, maybe even helping to create an introduction to a topic or something, things that'll help kick you off so that you can then start writing without anything getting in the way. Um, but again, with each of these steps, you have to take it with a grain of salt. And, you know, maybe maybe one thing we can get into is, is sort of like the limitations of these tools, because especially with ChatGPT, one of the main limitations is that when it when we're talking about facts, it is confidently incorrect. And so that adds actually another step to your process is really to fact check the output of, of a tool like ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned about this tool, ClearScope. Uh, I spoke with uh, Bernard Kong. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on my podcast, I spoke with Jeff Coyle, who uh, co-founder of uh, Market Muse. And uh, cool. can you tell uh, how to use these tools, I mean, like the correct way, because uh, sure. now when we get suggestions from this tool and I see when content creators add all these keywords, all these suggestions, but uh, yeah. it's overstuffing, it's not for human being. So can you tell how to find the right keywords uh, by uh, from these suggestions? Absolutely. Yeah, I think just like anything else we're kind of talking about today, it's it's a tool, you know, it's still... Yeah. It still needs your human input. It still needs your insight. It still needs, you know, to some extent, like your subject matter expertise on the topic, because again, what it's doing is it's using AI and machine learning to scrape 
the top results for a given keyword. So it really starts with keyword research. You you have to kind of start like our team when we use ClearScope and we use ClearScope for essentially any piece that's over a thousand words, anything that we're aiming to rank for. Um, and so it's for us, it starts with our keyword research process and identifying a primary keyword that we want to go after. It's only at that point that we then generate one of those reports because we want it to be specific to that keyword. Same thing if we use a tool like Phrase or, you know, Surfer or, or Market Muse to some extent. Um, and each of them have their own features and, you know, specialties that they they work with. But ClearScope for us is really the main one that we use. And um, so, yeah, so it's it's a matter of doing your keyword research, generating the report and then and then looking through that report. And, of course, taking those suggestions into mind in terms of semantic keywords that it recommends, but also understanding where some of those suggestions might be coming from places that that it, it may be pulling like in irrelevant results. Um, you know, it may be pulling something that is. Um, like kind of at a different extreme of the topic than than what you plan to cover. And so we never approach it like you have to use all these terms. And and to some extent, we don't approach it like you have to get to an A plus. So ClearScope has this sort of like rating scale of how effectively you're incorporating your suggestions as part of this content optimization process when you're writing the draft, when you're incorporating the terms, when you're, you know, trying to achieve a certain readability level. That's another thing that ClearScope suggests topic by topic. Um, so we don't look at it as having to to sort of like check every box, but it is, again, using the tool for its strengths, but also using our human intuition and sometimes even digging in. I, I mean, another thing with ClearScope or any tool like it is you get a suggested word count and sometimes we'll dig in and see you know there might be something that's skewing that number like really the top ranking results maybe aren't as long as what this like average target word count is suggesting so again like you still have to you know do your own research essentially you still have to kind of double check the output and it is a great starting point it is something that saves a lot of time um but I don't think with any tool that you should rely on it outright without looking into kind of what it's suggesting. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice. Awesome, awesome. Maybe, uh, I found that book offers are great with sharing stories. Uh, <laughs> once, yeah, once I spoke with Jim Edwards, he told me, uh, you know, uh, he worked in Business Insider 10 years. Yeah, uh, nice. he started on this company from scratch. Then company mm -hmm. was sold for $500 million, good success. Nice. And he told me that success of business insider depends on creating non-boring content. Now, business niche is boring, yeah, <laughs> but uh, business insider found the way how entertain the audience. And I see the same issue uh, with uh, books because Books mm. share stories, good, good stories. It's interesting to read, but not yeah. all books. Some business books are good for sleeping. <laughs> now when you take this book, it's valuable, but after reading, you can sleep well. You know, you don't need medicine. You just take any boring book. So can you tell your way how to mm. share value, but not be, uh, but not boring, you know, because you mentioned that you uh cooperate with b2b brands and most mm. content probably boring but how to entertain 
uh, and yeah, share value as well. Totally. No, I think that's a great point. And I'm maybe a bit of an outlier. Um, I love reading fiction books, but I'm actually not put off by like a boring business book. That's, that's kind of my jam. So <laughs> I'm, I'm like the weirdo in that regard, but um, I do have a chapter in my book, Writing for Humans and Robots, that is about storytelling and especially in terms of, you know, like the business storytelling, which is a little bit different than kind of like the fun fiction and fables and, you know, things like that, that, that you go to a fiction book for. But I think essentially when it comes to like my niche specifically, this like B2B tech or even just B2B in general, is to think in terms of the same storytelling elements you know you still have to have like a conflict you still have to have a resolution you have to kind of arrange your text and the way you talk about things in terms of you know somebody overcoming an obstacle and 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 talking through the way they got there talking through to some extent like the sales funnel and the decision making process you know how how do you sort of go from i have this problem to here's a possible set of solutions and then you know, in terms of the specific B2B technology company we're writing about, how did they, you know, how did they become the top solution that then solved this person pro- person's problem and became, you know, the, the savior of, you know, whatever it is they're dealing with. And also thinking in terms of the customer being the hero and, um, you know, the company being the, the resolution maker for them. So I think, it's still beneficial to think in terms of these storytelling elements and it's just adapting them to a sort of a different medium. Um, I think the other thing too is, is thinking about your, your product and solution in terms of, you know, how can you weave that into whatever content piece you're creating? So it's not just this, you know, faceless how to article or whatever, that's generally, talking about a certain topic but it's like how does this product fit into that topic you know how can you weave it back to you and not in an overly salesy way but just showing how how your product or your solution can effectively solve that problem with really specific examples screenshots and things like that and and on that note i think it's also about using effective visuals because people are are visual creatures we all have different learning styles and again where i might like that you know boring business book that's like text heavy and you know i'm i'm happy to just like kind of get through it because i'm i'm after the knowledge that's within i guess it's it's fair to say that it's a lot easier to read a book that you know has charts and diagrams and um even like character illustration something of visual interest to to just break up the text because i think when it comes to writing for humans specifically if you're presented with a wall of text it it almost just feels like this mountain to climb and if instead you know you're incorporating effective visuals to help tell that story it feels it feels like the time goes by a lot faster even if there are more things that are kind of stopping you along the way just because again people learn in all different ways and visuals are an effective way to progress the story. Nice. Nice. Uh, uh, I want to ask more about AI because, you know, uh, I check out what, uh, why content creators complain about AI because it's not (laughs) creative. No, creativity is another point that very important. And, um, uh, once, uh, read 
an article about uh, Lloyd Richardson. He uh, published a book 11 years ago, but he mm. spent 14 years to write this book. So he wow. spent 14 years to write a book, uh, published, and he couldn't sell this book for 11 years. He well, tried marketing, sales. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, then his daughter posted content on TikTok from an account <laughs> with zero followers. And it. this video became viral. Uh, plus 50 million people watch this video. Of course, I watch this video because I'm curious how to, <laughs> to film such videos. And uh, yeah, I found this video uh, doesn't have nice looking design, but <laughs> it's creative. It's interesting, right. you know, uh, and uh, it provokes curiosity to read this book. What kind right. of book is this? And today this book is bestseller on Amazon. A simple video makes a better job than uh, sales, marketing methods, generic methods. So can you tell how to be creative now in your content uh, to overcome your competitors? Sure. Yeah, no, I, I love that story because it is it is a story. It's a human story. And I think another thing that that video did was, was really spark that human emotion, right? Because... Yeah. We, we all put ourselves in her dad's shoes in terms of like, wow, you know, you, you really poured yourself into making this book. I mean, I, I felt that right <laughs> after having written my own and, and knowing just how hard that process is. And I, I mean, I think his book was fiction. I can't even imagine writing a fiction book. I think that's like a whole other harder thing to do that, that does require a lot of creativity. And so just the fact that, you know, he, here he is like, just kind of like waiting for something to happen. I think it, it struck a chord and, and all us humans to, to be the ones to say, you know, your book has value, like we want to support you. And, um, and I think your point that like the production value of that TikTok was pretty low. It wasn't overly produced, you know, it didn't have a lot of like post edits or anything like that. Um, that just added to sort of the authenticity of of really her ask to support her dad and and to just give his book a chance. And there's something very endearing about that. And so that's something that, yeah, I don't think an AI could come up with at this point. And, and maybe it can learn, you know, from from examples <laughs> like that. But I don't think it's necessarily nuanced. And, and I think that's like the main the main issue with AI and creativity is a lack of nuance. And I think like when we're talking about reading a fiction book and your favorite author and just like the way that they spin words, you know, like a a, a turn of phrase that's especially savory or whatever. It's like that's just not something an AI can do. They can generalize. They can approximate. But they can't get nuance because they don't feel the same things that we feel. Um, so that's that's always going to be a limitation of theirs, at least until they achieve sentience. But <laughs> we're hoping that's yeah. at least a little bit further out. Um, so yeah, to answer your question about how to how to better like infuse creativity into your work, and I guess one other note about AI and creativity is the fact that I I kind of view if you're treating using generative text as something that replaces either large parts or the entirety of your own writing process, I really see that as, as a breach of ethics, honestly, because it's essentially plagiarizing other people's work and, and possibly multiple other people's work. But 
um, I think it was Futurism. There's a couple different outlets that covered it, but Futurism has a great series of articles about um, that CNET like bank rate where they had come out and said many months ago, you know, we're we're testing AI. We still have like a human editor who goes through and fact checks it. But, you know, we stand behind these articles that we've produced and, you know, we we think that they're technically right. And and what's really interesting about just this specific case study is if you kind of go back to the way that Google talks about content and how they rank content and, and even how they sort of like devalue content, Bankrate operates in the space of your money, your life, which is like the highest tier of content for them. It has the highest standards, you know, it it has the most potential negative effects on on us humans because it's talking about especially like financial topics like you know how to decide on a mortgage how to pick a college um you know understanding ratios for making financial decisions and futurism found or you know again maybe it was a series of outlets and they just reported on it but they found that um that Bankrate had published several pieces that were actually quite misleading. Again, not because that was their intention, but because they hadn't properly fact-checked the AI, um, in addition to the fact that they were also plagiarizing from different Forbes articles. In fact, word for word in some instances, even the titles of the articles or the titles of sections or specific examples used, which isn't surprising, right? You can't you can't look at every single article out there. And you know, tools like Copyscape are great for for looking for human plagiarism, but they're not, it's fine-tuned for finding that spun up. AI plagiarism. And so, you know, it ended up being a huge headache, not only that they admitted to it, but then they were caught plagiarizing um, and, you know, kind of going against the spirit of your money, your life and and steering people in the right direction. And so I think that's something for all of us to think about is like, do we, do we want to be, do we want to put ourselves in this position where we're steering people the wrong way because because we didn't create the content so we can't stand behind it you know without really extensive fact checking and ultimately does that fact checking really is it better to spend your time on that or is it better to time to spend your time on creativity and so getting back to your original question how do you how do you create creativity um, again, I think the visuals is a big thing. That's something that you can add, you know, that it's something where you can sort of, you know, even if you're quoting a statistic that somebody else has shared, maybe you can visually present that in a new way that helps people to understand it better. Um, another thing I think that's great is to try to think about a topic in terms of just a slightly different angle that, than what's already been covered, you know, think about it in terms of how can I turn this into like a thought leadership piece? Because I really have a different opinion Um, or yeah, again, just like a slightly different take than, than what's sort of the commonly um, covered angle, you know, just take it from a different perspective. Um, And, and on that note, also thinking about, you know, weaving in some new subject matter expertise, you know, maybe, by interviewing a subject matter expert on a topic, you come across a totally different angle or even just a different way to think about things um, that you wouldn't have thought about if you if you're you yourself are not a subject matter expert and you hadn't taken the time to to talk to one. 
So I think those are a couple ways that you can create uniqueness and content. Certainly there are, there are many others. Um, but I think what it comes down to is really the conscious effort of, of creating something new. That's not like what's already out there because my personal opinion is, is why create it if it's already been done, you know, rephrasing things or reformatting things is really not enough as far as I'm concerned. Nice. Nice. Love it. Love it. Uh, my dear, I have the question about uh, emotions. You mentioned sure. that uh, it's better to provoke these emotions. And uh, you remind me about Apple. Uh, you know, I think uh, Steve Jobs was good by sharing stories. Today, mm -hmm. Tim Cook can do it. Uh, totally. Quite a good job. And once I watched presentation about new Apple Watch, after that, I bought three pairs. <laughs> For me, for nice. my wife, for my son, because these guys probably <laughs> kill me, you know, <laughs> if I buy only for myself. But, you know, after watching this presentation, mm. I got the feeling I need to own this Apple Watch. I need to have it because this gadget can simplify my life, decide my problems. Yeah, I got <laughs> this feeling. Uh, and I see when uh, brands, uh, companies share a lot of features. Apple sure. didn't share these features. You can find these features on some specific pages, but sure. in the first uh, page, you uh, get, uh, I don't know, like you get the feeling of having, of owning this uh, uh, gadget stuff. So can you tell sure. how to do it, how to provoke these emotions by sharing stories? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting. Like we're both marketers, but we're also both like susceptible to <laughs> to those emotional ploys like we know what's happening right probably more than the average person in fact but it's like no i kind of want to be sold on that so that's okay <laughs> um yeah it, i mean it happens all the time and i'm also an apple junkie so i i, I can't help it um i think what it like if you were to boil it down to a couple of of quick things and then the harder part is putting this into action effectively but um and it's really what you said it's it's not so much focusing on the features you know it's this size comes in these colors um it uses this processor or something like that nobody nobody cares about that except for the tech junkies and and yeah. even to them it's probably a secondary thing to again how it makes them feel to wear that product to feel that brand affinity to be accepted, you know, by others who have the same taste, right, or who are trying to solve the same problems. Um, so I think that it comes down to, to not focusing on the features, you can definitely document them somewhere on your product page, you know, as, as almost an afterthought, but, but more, again, about like benefits. Um, and kind of the end result, I think like another thing I noticed about Apple specifically is a lot of their commercials now and, and really for the past however many years have focused on very specific situations, like emotional situations. They're almost like these mini like cinematic, not documentaries, but, you know, it, it's kind of like a, a moment in the life of somebody using these products. Like, you know, there's a woman and her son and you know, she's filming him um, racing for a championship or whatever. And they're showing like the stabilization technology of, of the newest iPhone. Um, but again, yeah, they're not so much focusing on like, here's like every little detail about this cool phone, which there are 
many, you know, upgrades that they made since the last one. It's more about, you know, it empowered this family to capture, you know, a, a big moment and and to to watch, you know, the sun get the wind basically and, and to do it in a way that's not this like Blair Witch, you know, shaky, scary video that nobody's gonna watch, but they might actually like be interested in it because like it is a cinematic masterpiece that, you know, an amateur shot essentially. So so that's that's part of it too, is like creating sort of the creative and visuals that that tell that story, right? Without digging into the features. Um, and I think just in general, when it comes to B2B technology, software as a service, it's all about sending or selling um, the solution to a problem, not so much how you get there, but the end result, the value that that your tool can bring. And I think it's the same thing with, with selling services too. Like if I'm reaching out to potential clients, um, they're not, you know, as concerned with the specific details of how we get there. It's, it's what is the end result and, and what does that do for my company? How does that help me with my bottom line? How do I sell this, you know, to my higher ups is, is something that's, that's worth investing money in. And so to some extent, it's also about positioning and positioning your solution, not as an expense, right. But as an investment. So it's all, it's all these like little things. I think marketing, the study of marketing in general, or the execution of marketing is, is figuring out that nuance, which again, is what we humans are uniquely great at. So I think that's still, I think our jobs are still safe for now. Um, but you know, we can use tools like these AI tools to, to help us, you know, maybe in the earlier stages with the research, with setting us up for success, with, you know, thinking about competitors and what it is about them that ticks, like there's still, there's still so many benefits that these AI tools can provide us so long as we are not solely focusing on them to get to that end result. And we're willing to to put the time and energy into adding that human nuance that only we can add. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember another advertisement from Apple when uh, airport, yeah, the first airport came <laughs> to the world and uh, the message was a uh, thousand plus thousand songs in your pocket. Not mm, 10 yeah. gigabyte of memory. Right. <laughs> yeah. <Right>. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, uh, it looks much better, you know, when you have thousand uh, songs in your pocket. Um, right. But yeah, I have the question about um, AI. You know, it's interesting. I had the conversation with uh, Jeff Coyle, the mm. founder uh, of Market News yesterday, and he told me that the future uh, will be uh, divided by three companies. Now, uh, mm. the first type of company that uh, create uh ai uh the second uh who adopt ai and third sure. type uh obsolete companies <laughs> you know who can leave the trade uh, because yeah we can't ignore this though it's impossible and it's growing yeah. uh can you tell how your company adopts ai today and tips for others how to do it right Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think I definitely agree with that. I believe that AI is, is a great tool. You know, I think, I, I think my, my addition to, to those thoughts is I think that 
if if you're willing to partner with it, that's probably the best case scenario. If you ignore it or see it as a threat, then you're going to fall into that obsolete companies category. And so, you know, definitely something to avoid. Um, for us, I think, again, like we use tools like Phrase and ClearScope and we do use MarketMuse too, which I know is very AI driven. Um, so yeah, it's, it's infusing it into parts of the process without letting it sort of negatively influence like the end of the process. So for us, it's very much beginning of the process, um, doing the research, helping maybe with, you know, some rewriting of, of text that you've already created and, and pretty sparingly right now are like what we talk to writers about and editors on our team is we're going to run your content through an AI checking tool because we don't want you to rely on it. And again, I think there's room for experimentation. I think that's where we're at right now is, you know, would it help create an outline? Would it help sort of kickstart an intro that you then go in and fine tune? Um, but I'm just at this point, not totally comfortable, just kind of letting everybody um, use it for a bunch of different things. It's, it's very much experimental. It's very much something that we're looking out for. And it's also creating guidelines. Like, how do you outside of using these tools, how do you identify AI generated text? Because those tools are not perfect. I mean, they're, they're not going to catch everything because they're so new. And because it's such a, it's such an evolving um, field. And, you know, we had chat GPT, or we had, we had GPT three, and then we had GPT four, like even these models of AI are rapidly um, getting better, or, you know, just changing. And so even to like detect it is it's, it's kind of a moving target, you know, to be able to say definitively if text is AI written or human written. So, so yeah, it's, it's kind of like a cautious partnering, I would say at this point, but it's something that, you know, the other part of it too, is we're playing around with chat GPT. And I think there are so many cool ways to use it. One person that I follow that has a lot of great ideas that I've tested out myself is Jimmy Rose. He's like a Zapier automation expert. He's the founder of Content Snare. And so he's doing a lot of different experiments and sort of like trying them out in public, you know, sharing his results. Um, one that I really liked was essentially taking transcripts of um, sort of like voice of the customer interviews that he was having about his product and saying, feeding, feeding those to chat GPT, but also saying, you know, this is my product. This is kind of like what it does. Um, pull out some examples where, you know, in this chat, the customer's talking about how my product helped them um, to achieve, you know, their end goals based on the type of company that they are, or, you know, specific examples of, of language that they use. So I think that there's a real benefit to using chat GPT, again, to supplement the fact that like, he already did this interview with his customer, that's the human touch, right? Like that already happened. But now he's using chat GPT to create efficiencies so that he's not, you know, going back and forth over this interview to try to find, you know, really specific things. And he could still do that. But he's using chat GPT to create an efficiency. And another way that I've used chat GPT in a similar way, and this might have also come from him, but is um, to take voice notes. So sometimes it, I find it easier instead of 
just going straight to Google Docs and starting to type, you know, a blog post or something like that to go to voice memo. And especially if I'm just like driving around and I have something on my mind, I'll record myself talking about a topic. And then what I'll do is I'll feed a transcript of that recording to chat GPT and say, okay, here's kind of like, you know, five subheadings. I think that this topic is composed of, I could probably even ask chat GPT to suggest those, but usually I have an idea going into it. And then can you just create an outline for me based on, you know, my rambling notes that, you know, I, I gave the voice memo thing. So I think that's another great use case where it's my ideas. I'm just asking chat GPT to help me organize them and to create efficiencies so that I'm not going in and formatting, you know, and, and listening multiple times to grab the points. Um, so I think, I think that's really the best, what I see right now, some of the best use cases of AI are to help with research and to help with efficiencies. But that's probably the like easiest way to summarize how I approach it right now. Nice. Nice. Awesome. I love it. Love it. And <laughs> Maddie, my, uh, next question about something that I often do. Uh, mistakes, you know, I found that, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when you start something new, uh, mm -hmm. you need to make mistakes. Uh, even if you keep doing this, you, you have these mistakes, but I don't know another way how to learn because uh, I usually check out best practices, uh, generic uh, strategies, uh, and then I can think how I can adapt and uh, do mistakes to learn sure. it uh, and go ahead. Uh, can you list common mistakes that companies, uh, content creators still do by writing texts uh, for human being mm -hmm. and search engines and your tips how to find a much better way? Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And I think my initial response to that is I always tell people on my team and especially when we're working with a new client who, who wants to have you know, a lot of input into something almost to the expense of like getting it done and published. I always say done is better than perfect. And that's not to say that we want to publish something that isn't representative of their brand or that has a ton of errors in it. It's just that you can get to a point where you're almost like over optimizing, over editing, and then you, and then you never create like a consistent publishing schedule because you're so caught up in every little word. And I think as a founder of a company, that's another thing that I've had to come to terms with even outside of the content writing world. But there's a certain way that I might go about executing a task. And it, it, in some ways it differs from how someone on my team might execute it. And, and ultimately I think when it comes to just like delegation in general, you know, it's good to set parameters for what you're looking for to give examples or, um, you know, things like that. But it doesn't have to be you who does the task. And somebody else, again, might do it a little bit differently. But as long as it's achieving, you know, whatever end result you're after, even if it's a little bit different than how you would have done it, I would count that as a win over having to do it yourself. And you know, maybe it never getting done because you have a to-do list a mile high of other things that you're probably never going to get to either. So I think that's just a good perspective to bring into content creation, marketing in general, running a company, done is better than perfect. And 
the great thing about writing for the web is that it is a very forgiving medium compared to like when I wrote my book and, you know, I went over it a billion times to make sure that, you know, everything was formatted correctly. And, you know, the image captions made sense. And even like the images themselves didn't have any errors. I mean, it was a high level of detail because it's immortalized in print. And in Amazon doesn't make it easy to, even if I found errors to submit like a new, it would basically be a new edition instead of just replacing, you know, the existing one. And so, so writing for the web is great because you can always edit your draft. And I think not to say that the bar is lower where people like expect errors, but it's just understood that, especially if you're writing about a timely topic, there is some maybe sacrifice in terms of, you know, overanalyzing, over editing in order to get something live in, in, in a timely fashion. So people to some extent expect that there may be some spelling or grammatical errors. Of course, it's not the goal, but it, but it happens when you write for the web. And the great thing is that you can edit it after the fact and um, you know, it doesn't hurt anybody. So yeah, in terms of, mistakes when it comes to writing for humans and robots. I mean, I think maybe the biggest one is just a reliance or maybe a misunderstanding of sort of like the black hat SEO tactics of the past. And I'm talking about things like, like stuffing keywords, you know, using an exact keyword phrase a million times in your piece of content. And, you know, the thing that some people just don't realize is that it's not necessary anymore. Google has evolved their algorithm to um, to not need that sort of over-optimization, over-stuffing. Um, you can be effective with, with many less uses of that keyword. And, in fact, it would be better to use semantic phrases that are related, you know, that, that use slightly different words. It would be much better to focus on weaving those in naturally. Um, over using the same key phrase over and over and over again. Essentially, I think the the best the best sort of guidelines for for understanding if you're towing that line well or if you're kind of falling to the side of over optimizing for the robots is Google's helpful content update, which came about in the fall of 2022, and it gives you questions that you can ask yourself does this sound people first or does this sound like I wrote it for primarily for search? So looking up those questions, which you could probably find pretty quickly just by Googling Google's helpful content update, you know, questions. Um, I think that's the best way to to determine if you're making a, a mistake in sort of this modern era of Google. They, they give a lot of great parameters for thinking about that. Yeah, valuable, valuable. And mm -hmm. maybe I have the final question Let's hear uh, it. about your experience. You know, uh, I found that I usually get uh, good results with clients who understand SEO. If they don't, I tell them, take my course. It costs like <laughs> 10, 20 dollars. Learn from scratch, understand the basic. Then we can cooperate like a cohesive sure. team. Because if customers don't understand how it works, uh, just ask, please provide me traffic. Oh, no way. <laughs> Traffic doesn't sell. Uh, and uh, uh, it's the same like, I don't know, if someone want to lose weight. Yeah, you need to understand why you need to eat healthy food, drink water, right. train hard. Um, uh, let's imagine you started today from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills. You didn't write this awesome book about writing for human and robots. 
what will you do today to learn more about uh, writing for search engines and human being? Sure. Yeah, this this might be more of a general answer, but um, what really led me down this path is I started my own blog before I decided to freelance write full time, which then led to the agency. Um, I had some experience blogging for other people before that, um, mostly for the University of Iowa. I, I contributed to their study abroad blog and then their Department of Student Life blog. And so I I had sort of gotten a taste of what it was like to create content for the web in that regard. But um, I graduated school and I had a sales job and I just was feeling, you know, very creatively unfulfilled. Sales is so formulaic, you know, it's kind of like the same thing. You, you get you get thrown different challenges to overcome and that's the exciting part, but it's it's almost, for lack of a better word, like scripted, you know, there's there's a very clear path forward. And so I was having a bit of an existential crisis and trying to figure out like, if I'm not doing this, what do I wanna do? And it wasn't until I created a blog kind of as a hobby, but really as a way to test different digital marketing tactics to see what I liked, you know, what I could be effective at. That's when I really discovered a love of of SEO in addition to the creativity and the writing part. But as far as like getting people to come to that website, that's that's where I sort of it was, like you know, a baptism by fire learning how to do that while putting this blog together. And so in terms of writing for humans and robots, I think that that's something that just comes from from writing a lot of content and you know, ideally sharing it with people who aren't afraid to give you an honest opinion about it. There are certain Slack groups and things like that. You know, Superpath comes to mind, top of the funnel, uh, peak freelance if if it's something that you want to do as, you know, like a job. Um and I think that there are there are individuals and groups within those those Slack communities that are willing to give that, you know, sometimes hard to hear feedback, but useful feedback. And so I would say, you know, find find that group that's going to be honest with you so you can improve and so that you can identify if that's the way that you're writing. Um, but also, yeah, just just get out there and test different things, ideally outside of or, you know, perhaps before making it into like your full career or something like that. But if you're if you're trying to learn and you're trying to sort of bridge that gap between this is what you're doing now and this is what you want to do later, um, I think that that starting your own blog, and it doesn't have to be, you know, all about marketing or whatever. My blog was a Chicago lifestyle blog. It was just about living in the city, you know, enjoying life on a budget because, you know, I was a young, a recent grad, um, that that's what made me happy. So it, it could be about literally anything, but it's just an opportunity to, to start testing things and to start creating, um, like your own formulas for how you do stuff. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. I agree with that because practice, uh, makes miracle. It's not like to learn how to write. You need to write. <laughs> uh, it's like, uh, no, yeah. It's the only way. Yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo prefers to hit the ball a thousand times sure. than to learn how to play soccer. <laughs> so, right, right. yeah, it's, it's more about practice. Maybe it's a big pleasure to get again on my show to learn from you. Tell our audience the best way how to keep learning from you, how to reach out to you, how to follow you. Sure. Yeah, I would say I'm most active on Twitter. So I'm at Maddie Osmond on Twitter. 
Um, also love to connect on LinkedIn. So look for Madeline Osmond there. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, my book is probably the best way to learn from my processes, writing for humans and robots, the new rules of content style. And if you want to see, you know, what I'm doing in terms of things with my agency, it's theblogsmith.com. So pretty much online, almost wherever you can imagine, um, with the exception of TikTok. I haven't gotten into that. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> Guys, you can find all these links in the description below. Listen to us on Apple, Google, Spotify. Thanks again for your time. Love it. So valuable. You need to read this book. Guys, you can see a, a lot of <laughs> value. Okay, love you. See you.